Federal oversight bodies often look for waste, fraud, and abuse. But another trio of witches also bedevils the government. They would be fragmentation, overlap, and duplication. Let's call it FOD. The Government Accountability Office's latest report shows agencies have been able to hack away at FOD, but new instances keep popping up. We get the latest from GAO's Director of Strategic Issues, Jessica Lucas-Judy. Jessica, good to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. And we should point out this report is more than just duplicative programs, which are kind of fun to poke fun at. But really, it's more about generally looking at programs and finding ways to tighten up, even if it's not duplicated. Fair way to characterize it? Exactly, right. So we know that there are a lot of different federal programs that all maybe are trying to serve similar clients or provide similar types of services. And a lot of what our report highlights are ways that those agencies could work together more effectively. Sometimes it's sharing information, such as on trade-based money laundering, to be able to be more effective and more efficient with their services, or to have a strategy in place to make sure they're all working towards a common goal and not at cross-purposes. So one example of that is in the more than 200 federal programs across 21 different federal agencies. They're all working on diet-related chronic health conditions. You know, it's a very important topic. You're dealing with you know, obesity and diabetes and hypertension and other things. And it's really important that those agencies work together to make sure that they're achieving the purposes. In some ways, this ties into the government's desire for better customer experience, because if you are a small business or someone in need of some other type of assistance, sometimes people don't know where to turn or which government program is the one they should tap on. And maybe they could be consolidated in a logical way so that it looks like one program to the public. Right. Sometimes it is just a matter of making sure that they're keeping the end user in mind. And, you know, like I said, working together to get information out and to best serve the populations that they're working to try to address. Several of the examples that we had in this year's report, and we've been doing this since 2011, so quite a few number of years now, has to do with administrative functions even, just like within the Department of Defense. It has a lot of different programs among the different services to provide food and meals to its employees and contractors across the program. And they're just different definitions, different ways of tracking costs, and it makes it really difficult to compare across them to figure out what's most effective or most efficient. So we thought that assessing the effectiveness and efficiency of its program and having common definitions could help them save potentially millions of dollars while still providing the same service. And also in this year's report, you did note that the government is not unaware of this. It's not like a big blind amoeba rolling along, that a lot of recommendations from prior year's reports have been carried out. Maybe highlight some of those for us. Sure. So as I said, we've been doing this since 2011. And during that time, we've identified almost 1,300 actions that Congress or executive branch agencies could take to address these areas of fragmentation, overlap, or duplication, or just to work together more effectively or to achieve some kind of cost savings. And during that time, more than half of those 1,300 actions have been fully addressed. And another 20% or so have been at least partially addressed. So agencies have made really good progress in addressing some of these areas and have achieved about $552 billion in savings to date. We're speaking with Jessica Lucas-Judy, Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And at the same time, quite a number of new opportunities have popped up, as expressed in this year's report. Maybe highlight some of those for us. 
some of the bigger ones in our cost savings area, you know, again, Department of Defense, a lot of good opportunities there. Department of Energy as well. This is one that we've highlighted in the past, but we found some new actions in terms of pursuing less expensive options for disposing of nuclear and hazardous waste, you know, something that's very important, but this could potentially save tens of billions of dollars. Another one is in skilled nursing facilities within the Department of Health and Human Services. There were some actions that could be taken there to identify nursing facilities that have high rates of potentially preventable hospital readmissions and emergency room visits, and that could save Medicare potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. So really, Health and Human Services, Defense Department probably emerge as the biggest areas for savings and efficiency opportunities? Sure. In our past reports, those have been the ones that have had the biggest savings to date. About half of the savings that I mentioned come from those agencies. And one of the newest ones that's specific in DOD is F-35 Lightning II sustainment. It always feels funny to talk about sustainment of something that's not actually fully combat ready, and yet some of them are so old they do need to be sustained. What's going on there? Right. So a big part of the cost of any system or piece of equipment is the sustainment. You want to be able to build that in because it needs to be kept up to good working condition. So there's over a trillion dollars in costs and sustainment, and those estimated costs have been going up every year. And right now, the programs across the service are not affordable in the future. And so we think that reducing the costs and potentially by hundreds of millions or maybe even billions of dollars over several years could be achieved by developing some kind of strategic approach to make sure that those services can afford to operate the F-35. And I wanted to get back to the topic of duplicative programs. And you mentioned one egregious case of 200 programs in 21 agencies having to do with diet and chronic health of Americans. What's the best approach to that, to just consolidate them all into one or two places, to close down some programs and let others take over? Or how can the government really attack that issue? Well, it's not so much eliminating the programs, but again, making them work together more effectively and communicate more efficiently and have some kind of strategy in place to make sure they're all working towards the same types of goals and not getting in each other's way. That was one example, but we have several others in this year's report on other topics ranging from things like high-performance computing and a number of other areas in digital services, law enforcement use of force. Um, again, these are you know areas where having common definitions and data systems even could help eliminate some of that fragmentation or the the bad effects of the fragmentation, really. Right. And you mentioned category management at the General Services Administration. That's been an endeavor going back some years now, but sounds like there's still opportunities to save money there in procurement. Right. That's another place that over the years we've continued to highlight, you know, just agencies working together to be able to contract for common goods and services. And there's opportunities for cost savings there. We continue to find new opportunities pretty much every single year. And one of the overarching impressions I get in looking at the report is that the savings available amount to a pretty substantial portion of the so-called discretionary budget every year. So these are not trivial savings, are they? No, as I said, we've achieved about $552 billion in savings so far just by implementing the actions that we've identified in previous years. And we think still tens of billions of dollars more in savings could be achieved. And that's a pretty conservative estimate. We highlight a couple of different examples in the report. I mentioned Medicare before. 
Their payments for Medicare vary depending on where you get the services, if they're in office visits versus other types of evaluation and management visits. And we think that by equalizing the payment rates between the different types of settings, you could get billions of dollars each year. Um, You mentioned also category management. That's another one with potentially billions of dollars in savings over the years. Some of the other examples that we highlight, disability and unemployment benefits, just making sure that if someone's receiving benefits through disability insurance, that it's offset for unemployment insurance that they get. And that, again, could be more than $2 billion over 10 years. Right. So then, therefore, the savings can spill over into the so-called non-discretionary areas, too, like direct payments from Medicare, Medicaid. Right. All of these are intended to be able to free up resources that then could be used more effectively somewhere else. All right. Well, let's hope people pay attention to this one. I know I do. It's my favorite one except for the high-risk list. (laughs) Jessica Jessica Lucas-Judy is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do 
at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.
Shop Quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. <laughs> 